friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is oft interned with their bones. So let it be with Caesar. No, you know what? I, every week I'm like, yo, that's from uh, Julius Caesar. I'm going to try to start every podcast with that quote, but I'm not going to like try to explain it and stuff like that. But one episode, I'm going to do the whole, the whole speech and y'all going to be like, okay, all right, this is five minutes of my life. Anyway, but I'm not going to tell you when. Like, I'm going to do a few more lines and uh, that's what's up. Yo, it's MC Lars. This is the MC Lars podcast. We are playing Tucson, Arizona tomorrow. Then we're going to Phoenix on the 10th, San Diego on the 11th, then Long Beach, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, Boise, Salt Lake City, Denver, Kansas City, St. Louis, Oklahoma City, then Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Rochester, Boston, Teaneck, New Jersey, Brooklyn, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and then Washington, D.C. Wow. I'm exhausted just talking about it. No, touring is fun. And uh, those of you who know the password, you know what it is? hashtag stealing fire come stay at the merch booth you'll get a little surprise thank you everyone for coming out to see us shout out to all my tour mates and this week's episode is a two-parter so many of you know i've worked with brendan brown from weedus on multiple multiple projects going back gosh 12 years now when i worked in high school radio we got a copy of his album the debut album that had teenage dirtbag we got like six copies of it we got the parental advisory version, the radio edit version, and I was like, dang, this this Capitol Records is really pushing Wheatus, which was a subsidiary of Sony, et cetera, et cetera. So Teenage Dirtbag was the standout song on that record, but I listened to that CD a lot, and I liked it a lot, and then I didn't really realize that song was as big of a hit until my first girlfriend put it on a mix for me at the end of high school, and I was like, oh, that's kind of sweet. Like I didn't know she knew about that song, but it turns out that song was a hit for many people across the world. Mickey Avalon tried to sample it. Brandon said no. We talk about that on the podcast. We end this week talking about people who have covered the song and what he thinks of the covers. And then it ends kind of abruptly. And then I play the Cyberbully song that we just did with Ash Wednesday and me. And um, we keep coming back to in this conversation, other than the fact that I say amalgamation, like, 30 times. If anyone, by the way, if anyone can tweet me the precise amount of times I say amalgamate or amalgamation or amalgamating, you'll get a free t-shirt because I definitely use that word a lot. We talk a lot about uh, the media theorist Marshall McClure and his medium is the message essay. And we talk about how that has kind of um, been an influence on people's nostalgic memory of that song. Brendan talks about like the disparate elements he fused together, like metal and country and soul to create that song, but everyone kind of wants to call it this pop punk anthem. So we talk about the degree to which he agrees and doesn't agree with that. And we talk about like how Spotify has recommended playlists with that song with bands he toured with like Zebrahead and SR71, but also how people's repeated independent listening of that song and other songs has created playlists that he talks about better describe and show his influences. So that's kind of cool. We, we arrive at a moment where we both realize that Spotify has been telling him and me to listen to the same stuff based on our listening history, like Rush and Public Enemy and Fugazi. So that's a cool moment. But, um, 
There's also a great moment where Brendan talks about first really falling in love with Rush and seeing them on MTV and kind of being aware of them, but having this like aha moment. And it's strangely similar to when Schaefer, the Dark Lord, talks about discovering the Beastie Boys on MTV. And it's just kind of like indicative of this era when these, you know, counterculture or groundbreaking artists were giving this platform that became this universal moment for so many genius people. And it made me think like if Schaefer had found Rush first, maybe he would have done Weedest Music and Brendan would have been a rapper. I don't know. Shout out to, uh, let's see, shout out to my tour mates. Like I said, Front A Lot, Mega Ran, Schaefer the Dark Lord, and I Fight Dragons coming up this fall. I want to give a shout out to Carla, Doug, Charlie, and Brenna, some of my Patreon supporters, some of my older ones. And of course, a shout out to my newer ones, Mark, Steven, and Jeffrey. Thank y'all. Patreon.com slash MC Lars. I'm doing the Chronicles of Narnia. The horse and the, his boy is coming out next, followed by, let's see, Prince Caspian. So stay tuned for that. This is part one of my two-part interview with Brendan B. Brown from Weedis. Support them. They're incredible and they're really fun live. And uh, yeah, I'm really lucky to have a friend like Brendan. So let's get into it. Thank you for listening. This is the MC Lars podcast on your headphones. I am here with a friend, a mentor. You could, I could say, a hero and a, a big one of my big bros, Brendan B. Brown of the legendary band Weedus. What's up, Brendan? Uh, what's up, Lars? Thank you for having me. I just want to th- thank Brendan because he came out all the way from Long Island to record today, and uh, this man is always there for his friends. He's always he's always supports the music he likes. He always sticks his neck out for for other artists and younger bands, and he's like. A really good, really good friend to all. And I wanted to just tell a quick story that I don't know if you remember this. Okay. But that shows your kindness. You and I were walking around Greenpoint like seven years ago, maybe. And we were uh, walking all- along McGinnis and there's like this van of like these scruffy looking guys. And you went up to them. And you're like, yo, are you guys in a band? And they're like, yeah. And they're like, we're here for CMJ. We're trying to like get involved with such and such, like find out about good venues. And you stood there for like, 20 minutes talking to them about all the venues in New York, like where places to play, where to park, where to go. They, <laughs> they gave you your, their, their website and then you like, or they gave you a demo CD. And like the first thing we did when we got to your apartment, you played it and you were so stoked to meet these guys. And do you remember that? Yes. Holy smokes. I can't remember. It was seven years ago and it was, but, um, um, I, oh my God. Uh, they were called the black crows. No, um, no, I, that, no, that was a, I remember I kind of vaguely remember that. Um, that was fun. And, and it was like, I was like, oh yeah, this is like one of, this is one of Brendan's talents because he's reaches out to people and you've always been about like building a scene in a community and especially how, how you've kind of like helped a lot of the nerdcore rappers. I have you to thank in a large part for, um, meeting my fiance through, oh, the, yeah. through the channels and we could get into all that, but, um, Brandon B. Brown, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me again, Lars. And also, I, I, whenever I see a band traveling or anything, I'm instantly like, oh, I wonder how they're doing with their vehicle. Like that's the th- like the, the the empathy goes straight to the transportation factor because it's the sort of the most problematic, potentially problematic thing on the road. And you know, you really, um, I, I would wouldn't be surprised to find out that modern bands won't won't really survive unless they have a sort of mechanic in the band a little bit, somebody who knows how to do some engineering and some, and, 
and some mechanics. And, and how often you have to change the oil and... That's right. Like all of this stuff that lots of people don't think about that. Um, and I'm sure, I'm sure in most bands, there's like one guy who, or one gal who kind of um, is re- with all that responsibility falls on. And I think I've always thought that like, well, that's, I mean, we all have our strengths and obviously not everybody's going to wind up being an engineer or know how an engine works or something like that. But... Um, bands, bands tend to, to thrive and survive more when everybody knows like what the strong suit of every other person is and they respect it, you know, like, I, like, oh, you know, I'm really grateful Lars is in the bank cause he really knows how to build a website like, and, and recognize your, you know, what you can and can't do and like, like be, be fingers on a hand kind of thing. Yeah. And what's interesting to me about your project is that for years, we just has, it's always been you, but you've definitely like, you've been like the engineer, the song, the main songwriter, like the main source of energy, but you've always like the, those fingers of the hands, you've always like had different, as long as I've known you, it's always been like an evolving thing. There's, um, there's so much new co- types of work to do all the time. Yeah. Like the, 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 no one's ever going to just be able to say, well, this is my job and I know how to do it. And that's it. Evolution continues like. Man, it's so, it's so like, I find that monthly, basically monthly, I'm like, holy cow, I need to figure out how to do that. That's a new thing. Like, um, whether it's engineering the record or whether it's like, um, I've noticed that that's more of like, a, 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 like the evolution has kind of become very intense in, in the conversational world, in the realm of like, how we're talking about things, uh, mostly on the internet, but I feel like the internet as a thing is kind of, um, it's getting blended into our culture in a way that like uh, pretty soon no one's going to make distinguishing remarks about whether or not something's on the internet. And Fredolot and I last week were talking about this interesting distinction that 10 years ago, the whole, um, the Venn diagram of being a nerd who likes rap was like an interesting press worthy, you know, amalgamation of cultures and things like, like him being a rapping nerd. And now he, he likened like, um, Sam Raimi doing Spider-Man as this cultural shift where like superhero movies and Lord of the Rings and video games and everyone having like candy crush on their phone. And like the fact that nerd culture kind of amalgamated with mainstream culture meant that like, to a point where nerd culture is invisible, where it's not even like a thing worth like, obviously like here we are recording on a laptop and like uh, this will be posted through Twitter. And like 10 years ago, like it was a whole thing to, or even 15 years ago to be like, wow, you record on a laptop. That's so nerdy, you know, yeah, the blend, the blend of, uh, what used to be. Um, so like nerd, n- uh, I was talking to Mike Doty about this, this morning, this very morning about how, um, things were hard to find. So in, uh, back in, in, uh, the sort of early nineties, I went to see Walt Mink at CBGB's and I didn't know the headline band called the Jesus lizard. Like I hadn't heard of them. I had only heard of my band, Walt Mink that I was there to see. And there was that, I guess that could be considered like, uh, a, a sort of a nerd core, um, preamble, but but regardless, obviously the music wasn't wasn't nerdcore in any sense. However, the fact that there was this isolated sub pocket of of stuff that I that I liked, and the even the sort of 
the, the band, the act that the promoters thought was worthy of the headline slot hadn't trickled down to me somehow. Hmm. Um, and it's not because I wasn't paying attention. It's just because streams didn't, didn't cross as easily back then. Um, how did you find, how did you discover Walt Mink? Walt Mink was uh, a band that I discovered through Dave Hill's band, The Sons of Elvis. They had the same um, producer, engineer, a guy named uh, uh, Mr. Colson or Doug Olson, as he's also known, who worked at Smart Studios, I think, in in, um, in Wisconsin with Butch Vig's old studio. And uh, there was this whole legend around uh, a certain basement amp that was being used on the Walt Mink records because the guitar tone was so incredible. Um, I, I actually kind of come to think that has much more to do with John Kimbrough as a guitar player. The fact that he was using a, a 1950s Stratocaster with a, with a carbon humbucker pickup in it that had an incredibly high output. Um, this hybrid was, was drawing my attention, you know, ferociously. And, um, in the end, I think that uh, we've all, all culturally, zeitgeist-wise, gotten a lot more in touch with our fantasy lives because they're easier to live. Um, Warcraft or whatever. The, what, you, yeah. what name? Name your fantasy sub pocket. You know, um, everyone can go there and everyone can have their their simulation, so to speak, and. Um, so, so the, the idea of a subgenre of hip hop called nerdcore is a sort of less r- relevant, uh, distinction to, to make. And when I was, I was on, um, uh, Jens, Jensen Karp's podcast, he does a podcast called get up on this. And he, he was a rapper. He was like uh, signed by Interscope years ago. And he, do, he runs an art gallery now in, 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 um, LA and he's like a really interesting guy. And he wrote a book about like what it was like being, being a rapper at that time. But his point was like, don't, you know, just call yourself a rapper. Don't associate with a subgenre necessarily, because if people find it, they'll like it. And that's, what's important. And like, but then that doesn't mean you shouldn't build with people who have like-minded aesthetic, you know, and are fun to tour with. Sure. In our studio out on Long Island, I have merged, um, the listening area and the studio. They used to be isolated from one another. Um, and now the environment is such, the workflow and environment is such that there's a shelf with vinyl records across the basement from the mixing console and the recording preamps. And Matthew, our bass player, was sitting, uh, we were listening to, uh, we were recording Mike Doty's guitar parts for the project that we're working on called Thing Team, uh, which is a band that I'm in with him as the front man. And... Um, Matthew was pulling records out and he pulled out a, 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 a vinyl single by the band white lion, um, called little fighter. That's a, like a prized possession of mine. And then he pulled out Gil Scott Heron on vinyl. And, uh, and here's this, Matthew is arguably a, a representative of the mil- millennial generation. And he's equally interested in these two sort of rare things to have on the old format. Um, and he's telling me, you know, you get you got some cool stuff here, man, because he's a collector, and I'm right. not I'm not actually a collector. I just picked those things up along the line because I was like, oh, I heard this when I was a kid, and it's the same thing for both, the same exact thing for both. This sort of like clumsy nostalgia is what led me to have those two. Matthew's vinyl room looks like a museum, right? You know, it's a proper thing. But my point is only that there is no difference between Gil Scott Heron's LP and white lion, you know, little fighter. Um, 
they're both political records. One of them is about uh, the Rainbow Warrior, the boat that was sunk by the Japanese uh, in the 80s, the, the, the boat that tried to stop the whaling ships. Ah. And the other, obviously, Gil Scott, is a sort of a, um, a civil rights hinge piece of poetry that led to, arguably led to the, the, the hip-hop movement entirely. So, so I think that, I think we're, we may in fact suffer a bit for this blending because we're losing our sense of history a little bit, mm. which I'm scared of. Um, but maybe that's just because I'm an older person. Well, and I think something that I, I found is an interesting amalgamation. And after this, I want to talk about like your high school experiences, your early experiences with music, but like with Spotify, I love how I'll go on there and my top related artists are artists I've worked with artists that have influenced me or artists I've toured with. And, um, that's cool because then if you click through, I mean, there's kind of this living history in the Spotify metrics. You can look up the artists on Wikipedia or all music and like kind of piece together. And it's kind of like this. What's interesting about Spotify is it shows how the living culture is resonating with the metrics of like what songs are it's being keeping played. track. Yes. And, yeah. and it's, and it's not, it's it, it, look, I mean, obviously these companies are selling this information, right? Yeah. But they're also offering it as a sort of like, here's your history of your life that you've been doing since you've known us, which is interesting because yeah. just the other day, Joey, our backing vocalist, Joey Slater and I were trapped in the car going over the Pulaski bridge, waiting for the drawbridge to go down. And Spotify sent me a playlist message from a year ago and Everclear was on there and yeah. the sound of music was on there and um, dashboard confessional was on there and Fugazi was on there and Public Enemy was on there and NWA was on. There. And I thought, oh yeah, I remember when I started, I remember when I started listening to Third Base again. That's why this is on here. Yeah, the yeah. Cactus is on here because I had this like three day period where I'd never stopped listening to Gas Face, <laughs> right? And so like, you, it's it's reminding you that in, in some ways it's kind of, maybe it's overly positive, but it was kind of saying to me, you're all right. Check this out. You liked this last year. And maybe you missed these nuggets. Yeah, right, right. And, and I, that's what I like about Spotify, the weekly playlist. But it ends up giving me like a lot of like stoner rap and like <laughs> weird lo-fi records and like strange comedy. And it also ends up giving me all the nerdcore people that like I, I don't necessarily follow. And and um, I've had in situations where like it's given me recommendations of artists. I've contacted artists to say, hey, I really like your stuff. And it turns out they've like they're aware of my music, you know? And I'm sure like people who are influenced by you show up on the weedest recommended list. Cause there's that metric too, right? Right. So the, although that, that metric, I feel a little confused by, I, I've been recording, as I said, and when I'm recording, I throw the daily work up on um, my phone so that when I'm driving around, I can listen to it back. And I go through my favorite albums, ACDC, um, Fishbone, uh, Ani DeFranco, Fugazi. And then I listen to one of my songs from my most recent Weedest record. And then I listen to the stuff that I'm working on now, just to see if I'm missing the mark severely, just as an engineer. And while listening to one of the Weedest songs from the, a song called The Fall in Love from our Valentine LP, uh, immediately it, uh, it suggested, uh, that band, um, SR 71 that we toured with. <laughs> right. Now we toured with that band during a period of, um, record industry business that, that would pair a band like Weedis with, um, 
Zebrahead or SR-71 or um, EVE-6. And uh, not there was a failure to acknowledge at the time, I remember when Teenage Dirtbag first came out, that Teenage Dirtbag is an East Coast song. It's a laconic tempo with record scratching. It has an acoustic verse that always, to me, felt like Paul Simon or James Taylor were trying to write something that was appropriate for a hip-hop beat. Even the intro loop comes from uh, a series of, of uh, hip-hop sample, free sample discs called Wall of Vinyl from the 90s that we were kind of obsessed with while we were making the first record. And I was... I was kind of let down by the fact that the SoCal uh, pop punk movement was something that we were so um, vigorously associated with by radio people and so on. Spin Magazine recently came out with a like opinion piece that Teenage Dirtbag is not pop punk. And wow. I, I've kind of been saying that since 1999, but no, yeah. one, no one really cared what I had to say about it. And, and I think it, it would have never had a chance to come through all the noise back then that I was saying something like that. Well, it's like the metrics come from a part of something that was like a big part of this mainstream culture and talking about the internet, your career is very interesting to me. And like, I'm sure our listeners, because you span this era where it's like, you got your start before the whole Napster revolution, really, it kind of took off as all that was happening. And it was like one of those, I think people are nostalgic, especially about that song, because it's one of the last moments where I remember like last East, uh, last spring we were hanging out on the solstice and you were like, there's no one Stonehenge. There's remember you said this, it, it's like, there's not one focal point in culture. Like there used to be. No. And, and you, you said that. And I was like, that's like really true. And that song serves as a, um, as a lightning rod for a lot of people's nostalgia. And also like, I, I'm, I think that's maybe why people associate it with those artists, you know, it's all timing, obviously something we're not in control of in the chaos and the, Arrival or release, you know, I wrote, I wrote Teenage Dirtbag in 1995 and I re-recorded it and refined it for four years before we actually saw like record companies coming and talking to us about it. Um, and it's, um, during, during that time, you, you forget easily that the, uh, communications act was signed and the consolidation of radio became possible in 1996. Suddenly, Equal time was finally chipped away at, and um, the notion of um, of radio monopoly was was unleashed on people. So companies, media companies, could own the own the venue and the print advertisement and the radio station. And prior to ninety six ninety seven, that was never legal. It was also wow. also came around the same time in nineteen ninety nine that the Glass Steagall law was repealed, and commercial banks and and private banks the the wall between. The, that stopped your mortgage holding bank from gambling with your asset on the international dark market that went away too. And so like, it's, it's almost like the, the, the hammer was kind of cocked back mm-hmm. during those four years while, while I was trying to develop this song, this idea from a production standpoint, I did not want it to sound like it had been done before. I wanted it to be, uh, a mixture of Motown uh, and and uh, and hip hop from the waist down and from the waist up. I wanted it to be sort of metal and folk, and that and that was hard to do because I had done some engineering, but I had never gotten to that point. There were also only a few uh, references 
on that had gone on to the radio at the time. I remember there's one mix of uh, Lovin' is What I Got by Sublime. There's one mix. There are several mixes of that song that rotate on the radio, but there's one mix that, that I felt grabbed that thing that, that made it special. And I, that and a lot of Tom Petty records also had this, the Rick Rubin feel or the Jeff Lynne feel where there is no genre in the recording of the thing. It's just a pure, a pure example of, of where, of what the power of each genre was. Right. So your kick drum can be from the seventies and your snare drum can be from eighties metal and you can mix these things. Well, and, and that's, I think like what makes your career, I think to me kind of have that postmodern element where it's like a, it's an approximation of all these different influences and getting to know you over the past, gosh, 13 years, I've learned how like you and I have a lot of similar th- music we love and grew up on, but also like you've never necessarily been concerned with being one genre or one style. You're more of a storyteller and it's always been about like the power of the song and that your career has reflected that to me in that like as you've gone independent, it's always been about a great song first of all and then also being able to like have control over the of the technical side like we were talking about at the beginning about the band that needs to know how to run the 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 engine on the van right sure um yeah so i I think what we think everything we're touching on is that the the where we have to all become swiss army knives you know every everything has to be swiss armied right now immediately yeah um, you do have to know uh, uh what you're talking about if um if you're gonna go and try and make a record as an artist you ca- i mean there are, sure there are plenty uh have you heard of phoebe bridgers i have not okay not she's yet. this la songwriter i've been uh my sister turned me on to because she saw a mike Doty tweet about it that's where that's where i came on okay so um uh this record sounds really thick and it's like it's got a lot of layers. It's really pumped, but it isn't over compressed. And it's kind of like this, the drums and the, and the bass and the roads are making this, this bedrock or it was more fluid than bedrock. I would say like, almost like a, um, like a kid's, uh, castle trampoline thingy. Those, those like blow up castles Yeah, for the song to sit inside. Um, and it and it's honoring her voice that she's obviously found on her own very effectively in a way that is a new power rock. It reminds me of Led Zeppelin in ways, but it's not because it's a masculine sort of uh, hammer of the gods vibe. It's just that it's um, honoring the voice that she's found and and elevating the voice that she's found. And all of the really great records that I've always loved have done that in some capacity. Mutt Lang did that with ACDC, I find, uh, on the Highway to Hell record. Bond's the first time you really can experience Bon Scott, like, sh- tearing a hole with that voice of his. Um, I also find this to be the case on um, on Ice Cube's record, Gangster Rap Made Me Do It. You know that, that yeah. song? Man. My Piperclastic Flow. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> like, that is just, like, how can you not turn that up? Like, yeah. That, and that was interesting because it's like him looking back at like thematically his story, looking back, like, like at his life and all the damage he's done, but also his success outside of hip hop. too. It's an autobiographical sociopolitical masterpiece right? <laughs> that happens to have engineering and production to match the statement. 
which is an honor to the, an honor to the voice that he's found. Well, isn't that the um, what's his name, Marshall McLuhan? The medium is the message. Sure, that's kind of like a similar thematic thing. Yeah, right? but you can't do that without a message. Right. That's the whole thing. Like lots of people try to do that without the message. And that's the whole thing about being a full-time social media marketer or like a public sleazy publicist who's just trying to like promote trick the metrics and that's the stuff that A lot of last. the people who are involved in the in the music industry in whatever state that it's in, in the 90s one where people made money or in the new one that's independent and scrappy, they those types of people get this part wrong a lot, a lot. Like there's the, the, if the, if there isn't something being said by somebody who has something to say, then it's problematic. It doesn't matter how you dress it up. You know, um, we are kind of seeing, uh, the best elements of, I think of, of songwriting and storytelling, uh, uh, invade and occupy the country music movement. Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, and, um, Casey Musgraves is doing that. Um, uh, I don't know. There's a lot of, a lot of like what I think what Dawes has done is kind of like, um, v, you know, via LA, but they're, they're poisoning the, the Nashville well for us very nicely. And by that, I mean, like even Willie Nelson says, says stuff about Nashville in, in the oldest songs of his about how tough, and sort of uninviting as it could, it was at times. Um, you know, obviously I'm having a political discourse right now. I'm talking about the breadbasket of white people and the culture there versus the, the cities that integrate. It's really hard to avoid getting to this topic if you're going to talk about art at all right now. Sure. And I think that is, goes back to like what Damien and I were talking about it is that like now this, this, the, the center of culture is, is not middle-class white men having the main dialogue. And they, and I don't think that they should, it's like everything, especially with Nerdcore. I really love how it's become more eclectic, more diverse, more vibrant, younger, different genders, you know, you, you make me think of J Cole and open Mike Eagle and, um, and also for, I was also listening on the way on the car, in the car on the way into um, a more recent Rush song called "The Way the Wind Blows" mm. um, from Snakes and from Arrows. Snakes and Arrows, yeah, which is this sort of like prescient political masterpiece that that was from before our current populist soup, and it's almost like they saw it coming. Like this, this whole um, ele- they call it an elemental war in the song, we're having this like conversation about we're again examining the notion of, of coming together as in an elemental sense, which is, I can't believe we're having this conversation again. Right. You know, like Jesus, what, how many, how many times does cult, does culture and society have to recycle itself for the better for having been integrated? Right. Your resistance is futile. You, ha- in order to survive, now you have to be integrated. It's evolutionary. Yes, like, like, yeah. like, like. What, what, what is this? This is last gasp of the baby boom. Who remember milk toasts and stuff? Like, give me a fucking break. I think that. Um, well, Rush is a very great example because, like, Rush to me was always an interesting 
band because I loved Neil Peart's like literary influences. I loved how like they didn't necessarily, they, they were an amalgamation of different sounds for them. It was about the, the musicianship and the playing. And I never talked to you about this, but what do you think about their like uh, interpretation of Ayn Rand's anthem? Do you know? Um, well, they were like 20. Yeah. You know, they were, they were young Canadian dudes uh, in the 70s, also, you have to remember how difficult things were to come by. You didn't have, you couldn't look things up on Wikipedia. You couldn't see the hypocrisy of Ayn Rand. You couldn't see the failure of those books, which are so utterly banal and like like long-winded. It was as an idea, and, and Neil has said this, I don't need to to defend one of my favorite bands, but he has said that he's this like bleeding heart libertarian. He only saw, um, the, uh, the, the metaphor of them versus the record company of this collective homogeny versus original art. Mm. And that was why they related to, to those. So he related lyrically to those books, but he has, long since written about so many other things <laughs> like like and obviously you know um they th they have liner notes we all have liner notes from our past that that where where we were growing and learning things um yeah but uh you know listening to snakes and arrows you can kind of tell like which side of the dial they eventually wound up maturing to, and they're well and truly satisfied with it. You know. Do you have a favorite Rush record? Oh, that's a two-part question. What's your first memories of discovering that band, and what, what's okay, your favorite so, record? So when I was about, I was like seven or eight years old when this happened. Okay. Um, my cousin from down south, Dean, played me The Spirit of Radio. It had just happened. Which is on moving pictures, right? Yeah. No, no, it's on permanent waves. Okay. Permanent waves. Yeah. And it's, which is precedes moving pictures by one year. Okay. And it was this like, all I remember is that it sparkled. Like I, I, I can't, I can't, I can't remember anything else from the experience. Not how it went. I've long since learned how to play it a million times. But the point is, like, I didn't, I didn't experience it except for to say that it was a sparkly song, sparkly music. And invisible airwaves. Yes. <laughs> and obviously there was a bit of like Tom Sawyer was hard to avoid when you were growing up in the eighties. It was around. Um, but just like ACDC who were my first favorite band rush were exceptionally elusive. Like you couldn't find anything out about, they weren't in magazines. They just were, they just were doing their thing. Were they, were they on MTV really or not? Well, so here we go. Yeah. So, uh, fast forward to 1985 and I'm, uh, uh like ritualistically, taping on VHS, the MTV top 20 video countdown every day. Um, and, uh, the video for the big money pops up, um, off of power windows and they're on this giant monopoly board. And it's this, like, the song is a train wreck of guitar splashing and, um, keyboard flailing and it's like it's just insane it's it's really intense a really intense song with all of the trappings of 80s new wave keyboard music uh just encircling this incredibly powerful rock band yeah like it, and and 
you know, I, it, that blew me away. And I thought he's playing a bass with no headstock and this weird, like, what is this? What the hell am I watching? You know? And they didn't look like the typical MTV they band. They looked so weird. <laughs> yeah. They looked so weird. I mean, Alex Lifeson's hair alone could, could, could stand, you know, years of analysis, you know, but, um, but then, uh, then fast forward a couple years later, um, oh, by the way, at the, the, the skill set, uh, I was already playing guitar at the time and, uh, there was no way that I could ever have gotten anywhere with that music on guitar. I just wasn't there yet. Um, fast forward a, a few more years, 1987 or 88, perhaps, uh, my father was driving me home from the train station that I took the train to high school and, um, show don't tell came on the radio and it was the debut of their first single off the Presto record. Um, and I turned it up, never having heard it before. And my dad said, who the hell is this? And I said, this is Rush. Cause I knew what they, I knew that was them. Yeah. Like I, I saw, I, it was, it could only be Rush. And from that moment, 1987, 88, um, my fascination with Metallica and ACDC began to wane and my interest in Rush began to take over. And that was like, began a long, like chap second chapter of learning how to play the guitar along to that music. Would you say it inspired your falsetto vocals? Certainly. I think Prince was more an inspiration on the falsetto because Getty doesn't, he sings in a falsetto technically, but he's a, it's not in his head voice. He's a top belter. So um, that's that that sort of singing was there, but it was more Alex. I was paying attention to Alex, and yeah. The way, and, and in particular, the way that Alex can would drape a like a frenetic, frenetically odd guitar solo over over really tricky time signature changes, and still make it sound like you wanted to sing it. You know, like it's crazy. And I, what I always loved about Rush was, for me, Primus was like one of my first favorite bands, and I loved how listening to Primus how. Larry Lalonde, Lalonde, yeah, Larry, he, he, yeah, he would back up, he would back up Les Claypool. His whole purpose was like being a support structure to Les's insanity. Yes. And then hearing, discovering Rush later, I was like, oh, Rush definitely influenced Primus. Yeah, totally. And, and yeah. like how, and how it's like, it's an art to be, to be playing an instrument like a guitar, but in a support, like a support thing and letting the bass player shine, you know? So this was the, this, around the same time, um, began to hate guitar players uh, as I was one of them because the late 80s was just a, a maelstrom of, of crap guitar like happening. Like, and I think a lot of people have looked back on it with fondness, but the notion that if the singer steps out of the spotlight, the guitar player steps in is like, shut up. Like, give, give me a you have a song about that, don't yeah, you? Yeah, like, get the hell out of here. Like, like, yeah. like I mean... And, and, and the difference with, with Prince and what Alex Lifeson and Willie Nelson and Tom Petty, Mike Campbell knew how to do was to be a support, a support piece, a melodic and harmonic support piece and not a showcase. Mm. And that part of guitar playing was incredibly interesting to me. And the other person who f fully fleshed that out and realized that was Ian MacKay. Mm. Um, that, that guitar music, Fugazi and is well, I think the finest of the 20th century ever. It's like it's like these bent, twisted, misshapen chords of almost thereness. Like we're gonna get there. You get there. Here I'm showing you what happens right before 
what you want to hear. Yeah. Why don't you do it? Yeah. Like, you know, it's just like the springboard of, of thought and, and inspiration. Well, and that's kind of the ethos of, of discord and the label, like, like we'll show you what to do. You put the piece together yeah. yourself or yeah. like, I always have a quote from Jello Biafra in all my records. It, anyone could have made this album. Now go do your own. And that's from his spoken word album. Yeah. And like, I think that's like, that's, that's true. It's about like, like, kind of also subverting the masculinity of the guitar as like this, this obnoxious yeah, <laughs> phallic thing. Phallic extension. Well, you know who the other person who tricked the world on that is Jay Maskus. Oh, right. Um, yeah. He knew how he had those chops that all of those eighties shredder guys had, but he, but he was like, no, no, uh, the chops can be used to produce emotions and finesse and nuance and, and thought thoughts that are complex and not just a, a, a walkway to lay your penis out on so it can get to the other side of the arena. Like, that's not what this is. This is like, this is Jay Maskus's guitar solos are, are the inner view of his pain to me. Like that's what they are. Mm. And he feels it of everyone. Yeah. Exactly. And, 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 and the fact that they were just so loud. Like the screaming from we the saw them together, didn't we? Remember in yes, Manhattan did. yeah. 10 years ago? Yeah, we saw in that. What was the name of that? Was it a club or did we see no, them? No, it was, it it was, was a summer. Park. We it saw them in the park. park. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, was yeah. great. Yeah. Um, okay, so so high school for you. So um, you were you were like you grew up in Long Island, you grew up in Northport, right? Right. And um, when did you first start like realizing that? you wanted to play music or what, what were your like steps towards? So that? very, very early on, I think when my parents said when I was two years old, I would listen to Mac the knife, which is, uh, for some reason I thought it was about jaws. Um, which like came, the fin? Which came out two yeah, it came out two years after I was born and was like somehow got into me. I think somebody had a 16 or 18 or eight millimeter, uh, somebody in the family had an eight millimeter jaws reel that was like maybe illegal and it got played on on TV at the at the at, on, well not on TV on the on the screen on the movie screen the pull down movie screen like you use um, in in family events and stuff and I wasn't allowed in the room but Jaws was like the little bits of it that I caught I somehow related Mac the knife. Um, remember we, we short aside. Remember we watched Jaws on my laptop at your place with Hurricane Sandy. Yes, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> yeah, it was the first time Gabrielle Sturbins had ever seen it. I was so jealous of her. And we had, and the power was out, but we we had juice in the laptop. Yeah, we did. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. as the water engulfed your block, we were watching yeah, Jaws. As the water came up and started started flooding the basement, we watched Jaws. Um, side note. Okay, that go was ahead. great. That Sorry. was fun. Good times. Good times. Good, <laughs> good times. times. Good times. High five. Um, so, but. Uh, uh, and then uh, the first concert I ever saw was Sean Anna at at uh, uh, um, Radio City Music Hall, um, and I got to meet uh, I think Donnie, Donnie I think that was his name. That um, and then uh, we uh, after that was um, I mean Northport Long Island was a really difficult place to find anything subculture. Long Island is a terminus, and no one is really passing through Long Island to get to anywhere else, so it can be a little stagnant as a as a local culture. And, and one thing that's interesting is we went to the bar where Kerouac drank in Northport. Yes, oddly, Kerouac seems to have sought out terminuses at the end of his life. He lived yeah. on Long Island with his mother around the corner from our studio. Um, and the place I grew up, like he's, he's on the next block. Um, there's like that old house with the, that we walked past. Yes. Huh? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, 
and uh, he also went to Florida after that, which is another terminus. Yeah. Um, so, so it, it's, anyway, we could have another podcast about that, but right. why he why he sought the end of everything? Yeah, yeah. Um, and the but, end of and and end of the U.S. when he came to California. Sure, that yeah. was part of his journey. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I always think I always feel every time I get to Los Angeles, I feel like this is the place where the American dream came to die. Like it ended, it all ended here, you know. Yeah, and, um, it, and it got right, and it has great diners. Um, but <laughs> um, well, so does Long Island. Yeah, Long Island has better diners than Los Angeles. Come on. Um, <laughs> but anyway, the uh, the subculture of anything was really difficult to find. I remember when I was thirteen, it was the kind of the first time I ever heard of the Crumb Suckers because some kid had a had a jacket on that said the Crumb Suckers on it, and in my high school, a tape of um, MOD and SOD got passed around. You know. Um, and the Jerky Boys tape was another tape that got passed around. That was like somebody's relative did that. Like that, yeah. that was, and this was the, this is 1987, 1988. But prior to that, in the earlier, the, the, my time in Northport as a grammar school student was punctuated with, uh, oh, my brother just got Power Slave. Let's listen to Power Slave. Or my brother just got um, 1984, Van Halen. Let's listen to that. Or Diver Down. Or like, um, and then car trips with the parents had uh, Huey Lewis in the news and Linda Ronstadt and Willie Nelson and Bob Marley. There was a lot of Bob Marley. My father used to play a lot. Um, and so my music was intense for me, but it was really, really limited, you know. Um, and uh, sort of like what I went to high school in 1987. I started high school. And it was, I, I can't say that it was a positive time. It was a very, very dark time for me. Um, I was, uh, I was incredibly lonely and very sort of self, I want I'll use the word centered, but not because I chose to be, it's just because I had no other choice. So like, um, every Saturday I remember I would put on this one pair of sweatpants and go into the living room with my socks and throw on, you know, who made who. Uh, or um, Ride the Lightning or Injustice for All and just play every solo, play every piece of it, every little nook and stop in the middle if I, if I screwed up and go back. And this was like Saturdays and Sundays avoiding my homework um, f- for eight hours, nine hours, nine hours of playing guitar. On, and then on when I got home, after school, the same thing. Like, um, and the only reason I stopped was because I went to a, a, a pretty rigorous academic high school and it was three hours of homework a night, no matter what. So, um, and I took the train, I would get up at five thirty or so to catch the train, uh, almost as far as into Queens and then, uh, walk up a, a couple miles to the high school from the train station in Mineola and then back, and you leave at night and you get home at night kind of thing for high school starting when I was 13. So, um, it was weird. It was, so it was I, like an intense academic, rigorous, intense academic and commuter life yeah. started at the age of 13. Did you have a Walkman or anything on the train or I did. Um, I was always very scared to bring it to school, um, because it could get confiscated by the school or it could get stolen by the Mineola kids in the park who hated us. So, hmm. Um, there was a lot of violence. Uh, there was a lot, I got a knife pulled on me when I was walking to the train, you know, um, there was, uh, 
I, I mean, Northport in general was a very violent place. And by the time I was nine years old, I was in more fistfights than I could even count. Like, like it was a, it was a thing, you know? Um, I, uh, I, you know, you probably, you, we've talked about this before, but there was a, there was a satanic drug induced homicide in the woods near my house when I, in Northport when I was 10 years old in 1984. And it was, um, one of the reasons I wasn't allowed to go to Northport high school it was a ton of drugs out there at the time. Um, really hard stuff, like really hard stuff. Like a lot of acid and, and heroin. Yeah. Yeah. There was like, there was, um, um, uh, for whatever reason, uh, Northport was a very easy place to, to acquire very hard drugs. And, uh, I remember when I first got to Chaminade, it was October of my freshman year, this upperclassman who I had always kind of thought looked like Angus Young. He was way taller. Um, he kind of cornered me in, my, in the little locker alcove that I was in. And I thought, you know, I was going to get my ass handed to me. And he's like, you're from Northport, right? I was like, yeah. And he's like, can you get me acid? Oh, my God. And I was like, oh, I, I don't even, I'll, I'll look around. Like, I yeah. And I was like, I'm not going to fucking do this. Like, yeah. like I'm, I'm afraid to bring my Walkman into school. I'm not bringing a fucking sheet of acid, like, you lunatic. <laughs> like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, life is dangerous enough for me, pal. Yeah. Um, but, but in a way, that gave you some sort of, like, credibility, right? Some I, sort of... D- I don't know. I don't know if that was even currency. Like, m- maybe it was currency or maybe it wasn't. I don't think yeah. it really held much. I think, I think that... Um, I think that he would have got it somewhere else and would have been, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, I just, it was weird to have some kid from Nassau County just approach me out of the blue because he heard that I was from a town that had a reputation for having a lot of drugs. Maybe a little insulting though. Like, what am I, your mule, your drug mule? Uh, you know, it was this weird, it was this weird mix because at the time I would, I almost would have done anything to be down sure. with upperclassmen because I felt, I felt quite physically in danger. Not so much because the kids in my high school were going to kick my ass, but because getting to the park and in, in safe, getting through the park on the way to the train in safety was a really challenge, a big challenge. Um, my, uh, uh, there was this huge high school on high school brawl. One time, my freshman year, when uh, it was actually my sophomore year, there was a kid walking through the park, another train. It was about 14 or 15 train kids. On some days, there were 20 train kids, but we didn't go to the same place, so we didn't take the same train. So more frequently, I would find myself walking with two kids or three kids or one other kid or a lot. A lot of time, I was on my own. And um, you had to cross through a park where many old high school students would hang. That was their hang park. And, you know, that was the only way to the train station. You couldn't really go the long way. If you went the long way, you might have even got got it worse. So um, there was uh, one kid who was walking through with a tuba. He was on on band. And they took his tuba and they beat him with it. um, And they put him in a coma. Wow. As freshman kid. And the very next day, a bunch of football players went out and grabbed some Mineola kids and put them in the hospital. And the day after that... There was 400 boys on one side of the street. There was 20 Nassau County police cars. And then on the other side, there was 400 Mineola High School kids with baseball bats. And it was like, thanks, guys. I got to go get the train. <laughs> I'm the only one Thank God who has police, to cross right? this street. You know? yeah. And that was the day I got a knife pulled on me. And I was wow. lucky enough to be physically in a position where the chaos played played to my advantage. I... 
was walking through and I had my hoodie up and I had taken off my tie, all the identifying stuff. I had put sneakers on and I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. And some kid, some tall kid noticed me. Um, and he, there was a couple kids in front of him and I was able to grab one of those kids hoodies and pull him around the corner and make like it was somebody else when the knife was, was presented. So it was like this weird little, not a chess move, but like clumsy checkers, like where the guy, the guy was in the way. And I, and I walked past the crew without uh. getting, without getting into trouble. But that, that was the, he saw me and there was a knife coming at, coming. It was that's traumatic, man. It was bad. It was bad. It wasn't the most traumatic thing that had ever happened to me, but it was pretty, pretty intense. And you were, how old were you? I was, it was the spring of, no, it was the, it was the spring of 1989. I was 15 or 15. So you have a, don't you have a concept record about the, those ritualistic satanic murders? Yeah, um, I wrote I wrote a bit about it on on the Lightning EP, um, and to to you know that um, over the years people have asked me like what how, can you tell us what a dirt what's a dirt bag, and I've always kind of said oh, a guy who like listens to his own tunes and wears you know tight jeans and has a mullet and all that stuff and um, and it, in the end I realized like what is really what was really a dirtbag where I came from? A dirtbag was Ricky Casso. Like that was, he was the guy who tricked his friend into the woods and murdered him in the name of Satan. And uh, if you were a dirtbag back then, the cops, the teachers, the parents, the clergy, they thought you were bad news. And he was arrested wearing an ACDC shirt. I had a tape case full of ACDC by that time. So, um, it was a pretty weird, bad scene. Uh, I remember I had a science teacher who really hated me because of the ACDC thing, like hmm. a, a nun who took the whole satanic music thing very, very seriously and was, gave me a really hard time. Like it genuinely targeted me for like, I guess not physical abuse, but she was really cruel to me like said stuff about how my parents raised me and shit wow like really really on the heels of this of this tragedy yeah yeah wow so so um in a way like you've you really put all this you took all these stories and like and and created these songs from these characters from real people in your life sure and you continue to do that don't you sure um and there was also like a there was also like a jock version that I kind of address in wannabe gangster, um, the sort of clean cut kids who th- who look down on the dirt bags. So I'm, what I what I'm what I sound like is very like you know uh, greases and and socia- greasers and socias, but um, uh, there was no like organized football mentality to it. It was like chaos, like yeah, it was full, you know. You get you just get your ass kicked for nothing kind of thing. So Comac is a part where the those the kid yeah those the clean cut kids were from like around the Comac area, and fronting like they were gangsters. Fronting like they like their heart their hardcore side was like we're gangster you know we're we're like mafioso gangster, um, 
And then the dirtbag kids were like, uh, like metalheads, you know, Black okay. Sabbath and King Diamond and like that, that kind of stuff. Something funny, and uh, I can edit this out if you want me to, but the, um, when Mickey Avalon sampled your song, didn't he reference ACDC? Yeah, he said, listen to ACDC, baby, with me. I said no to that. <laughs> <laughs> you don't think you did it justice? Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't fun. I didn't find it fun. I didn't find, I didn't get excited about it. That's all. You know, I wasn't mad at him or anything. I was just like, ah, it's not, you know, it's not exciting. What was, what's been like so many bigger artists over the years have covered that song. And like, what are some, some covers that stand out to you? Chris Caraba did a great cover of it. Uh, That's cool. He did a good job. Um, I like the One Direction version. It's cool. Um, Especially what they did with it in the movie where they, they kind of anim- animated themselves as comic book superheroes and stuff. That was neat. I think Mary Lambert did a great cover of it. Um, she she kind of uh, famously said that she thought when she first heard it that it was a lesbian love story. Um, uh, that's great. I, I think that's fantastic. So you want to use the internet? Be nice. You might find you gotta be kind to people online. Don't be a don't be a don't be a cyber bully. You gotta be kind to people online. A good friend is what you might find. You gotta be kind to people online. Don't be a don't be a don't be a cyber bully. It's never okay to post rumors or threats to spread lies about your peers or send harassing texts, impersonating people, sharing private information, photoshopping pictures to cause humiliation, cracking someone's password or hacking their account, stealing people's credit cards and charging large amounts. These things are illegal. You might end up in prison. Don't Snapchat while you drive. It might impair your vision. Don't be a grouchy grump or a misanthropic chump. Say nice things on the internet. Don't be like Donald Trump. Politics on Facebook can be so polarizing when friends and family start to post opinions so surprising. Don't enter in the flame wars. You can always close the screen. Go up for a walk instead of being mean. When it comes to online etiquette, take action, my advice. Don't talk that trash on YouTube just because you hate your life. You gotta be kind to people online. A good friend is what you might find. You gotta be kind to people online. Don't be a don't be a don't be a cyber bully. You gotta be kind to people online. A good friend is what you might find. You gotta be kind to people online. Don't be a don't be a don't be a cyber bully. When I was a little girl, my daddy told me a bully is a kid who takes your lunch money. Looking at my screen, I miss the good old days when you could see a bully coming and walk the other way. We're living in a world where we're epically connected to mean tweets, live feeds, rude comments on Reddit. We could all be nicer. I think we're well aware. So I've developed a list of kind things you might share. A selfie of you hanging with your grandparents. A status about how a seed grows when you plant it. Beautiful landscapes, sunset photos, water refracting light twice, double rainbows, poodles and tutus dancing on their hind legs, a mountain Dolphin making friends? First Sunday of May, a nice shout out to your mother. College ball, half court, buckets at the buzzer. You gotta be kind to people online. A good friend is what you might find. You gotta be kind to people online. Don't be a don't be a don't be a cyber bully. You gotta be kind to people online. A good friend is what you might find. You gotta be kind to people online. Don't be a don't be a don't be a cyber bully. Lorraine had strong opinions on the Second Amendment 
And anyone who disagreed with her, she unfriended. With every single click, she felt like a hero. Till she woke up one day, and her friend count was zero. Back in 04, there was a really mean blog written by girls who hated Katie's songs. Ten years later, they couldn't get tickets. Her show at the Garden sold out in two minutes. Sam was from LA, trolling every day, telling girls on Instagram that they should watch the weight. Drinking Mountain Dew as he crafted every post till he gained a thousand pounds and couldn't leave his home. When we hear the word troll, we think mean and unstable. Not cute plastic dolls with jewels in their navels. Xenophobic tweets or racist peppy memes are not what large Wanna see up, up on, on our feeds. feeds? You gotta be kind to people online. A good friend is what you might find. You gotta be kind to people online. Don't be a don't be a don't be a cyber bully. You gotta be kind to people online. A good friend is what you might find. You gotta be kind to people online. Don't be a don't be a don't be a cyber bully. That song is Don't Be a Cyber Bully. That was on my Jeff Sessions EP that came out a few years ago and uh, produced by Richard Matthew, who is a wonderful producer who I want to interview on the podcast one day. So, Richard, if you're listening, I need you as a guest, bro. Um, yeah, so anyway, this was the part one of my interview with Brendan from Weedis. Next week, we are going to talk about like what it was like being on a huge label, getting out of his deal, finding out he had a surprise hit in Australia and England and just like what it's been like the last 20 years as they approach the two decade anniversary of that smash song, Teenage Dirtbag. I'm MC Lars. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoy it, please tell a friend, please leave a comment. And uh, I really appreciate y'all listening and uh, tune in next week for more great conversations with Brendan B. Brown. Have a good week, guys. Thanks. Bye. Nerdcore I'm on the road.